Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A while ago, while scrolling through Instagram, I came across some pictures of furniture that looked both surreal and uncanny. Flat hardwood bookshelves that appeared as if they'd been drawn in Microsoft Paint. Concrete bricks that seemed as soft and round as pillows, a vase made of high-performance carbon fiber, and an aluminum bench carved away to reveal its hollow sections. There was an appealing kind of flatness to all of these pictures, where the objects they depicted seemed to be both derived from and made for the screen. They all had this strong graphic quality, with an emphasis on texture and surface and in a way they could be described as digital ready-mades, or even as aesthetic fragments of the internet itself. From the Architecture Foundation, you're listening to Scaffold. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield, and in this episode, I speak with the designers behind these objects, Sasha Stitchin and Nicholas Gardner, of the practice Soft Baroque. Soft Baroque's work has been described as dialing up the absurdity of what's already prominent in the consumer marketplace, as a way of grappling with design's most basic notions of value. Since they started their practice in 2013, Sasha and Nicholas have found their niche, as the writer Jeppe Ugelweg has explained, in playing with ideas of objecthood and perception, surface and deception. Ugelweg goes on to say that Soft Baroque's roving, experimental approach is defined by a constant blurring of boundaries between conventional household items and conceptual art, between 2D digital images and 3D sensory material, with their references spanning Home Depot gadgets and mid-century modern masters to IKEA furniture and digital stock photography. Sasha, who's from Slovenia, and Nicholas, who's from Australia, met while they were students at the Royal College of Art in London, and have shown their work at institutions like the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Swiss Institute, as well as at numerous galleries and design fairs all over the globe. They've also taken on many direct commissions from private clients, including fashion house Balenciaga, Swedish design company Hem, as well as a collaboration with Pinup, an architecture magazine, who teamed up with the leather designers Marcel to create furniture for sun worship. All right, so here's my conversation with Nicholas Gardner and Sasha Stitchin of the design practice Soft Baroque. Looking at where you both have come from, in terms of the, the kind of work you were doing before you met each other. Sasha, it seems like your world was in the visual arts and graphic design. That's what you were studying. And Nicholas, you were coming from a world of industrial design, object making, furniture making. And I think it's really interesting just to hear about how these two worlds intersected, how you met each other when you were studying at the RCA and how these two poles, one in the physical and one, I think we could say, in the virtual or the the surface, met. Um, And before you answer that, there's this line I found, Sasha, in your um, bio that's posted on the RCA's website from when you were a student. Um, You end with this exclamation that the two-dimensional is the new three-dimensional 
and surface is the new architecture. Can you just expand on that? Um, wow, where did you find this? <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's like an archive of student work on the RCA's website. Yeah. This was probably from 2013. Yeah, wow, yeah. T totally forgot about that. But yeah, I, I mean, um, I think that was a lot what I was kind of exploring during, during my studies there. Um, and I think it's also what we, me and Nick together, kind of picked on when we started to work together. Um, and we're both kind of quite interested in the idea how kind of surfaces became just like um, like an idea, you know. They're they're no longer they're no longer kind of traditional surfaces as, as we know, but they're often just very like thin replicas of material that we think they are um and i mean that's kind of the most the, the most simply and uh, precisely i can kind of put it um no i mean it's I, I think this is why the work that you do together is so exciting to me because there's something so hard to pin down about it it really is about a feeling that it generates and maybe that's a, a better place to start what kind of feelings the work has generated in me. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of them is um, the sense of uncanniness. I mean, a lot of the objects that you've designed, they look like I've seen them somewhere before. Mm. And in most cases, I imagine I've seen them online. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they look like digital products made real. And they often have some kind of artifact or formal reference that's familiar to myself and a generation of people who grew up on the internet and use digital tools. So for example, there's a stool you've designed called the hard round stool that basically replicates the kind of geometry that you see in programs like MS Paint or even Photoshop mm -hmm. and the hard round tool. So you're taking these digital tools and then just kind of physically manifesting them um, but also, I think one of the earliest projects, and maybe this is a way into that question about the relationship between the surface and the object, was the project New Surface Strategies. Mm. And I think that might be the, the gateway into the conversation. So could you tell me more about New Surface Strategies, what exactly it was? Well, I, I think it was... It was a little bit of like a brief because I was working for Max Lamb, who's another like a designer for a while. And he was doing this like exhibition in Milan with like 50 chairs in a sort of circle. I'm not sure if it was 50, something like a lot, all of his different processes. And he asked us to kind of do a little installation in one of the rooms there. And this idea was a little bit in response to that we didn't we 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 were dabbling in the idea of like uh, the kind of material value of furniture was becoming like a very much of a digital product rather than like a physical thing or a historical thing or a taste thing it was almost like it was being converted into like the photograph of a piece was becoming way more sort of influential than the actual piece itself or the usefulness of the piece itself so i think that there was this interplay with like Instagram or with like, um, you know, Tumblr or whatever that was kind of accelerating the role of image in design rather than the actual kind of actual piece or whatever, or what it, what it was, how it was functioning in reality. So 
I guess the, that's the sort of philosophy behind those works. But in reality, it's essentially like chroma blue kind of effect like they do in, in special effects or news screens, but rather than being the background kind of animated, um, it's the furniture itself that's keyed out by like a camera and a light that like we had a live feed going through the gallery so that people could sort of sit on these blue chairs and then look at themselves in the screen or in the projection and the material of the chairs would change and shift. And it was a sort of um, like slightly di sort of dystopian way of looking at how we can imp like digitally um, kind of amputate the decorative aspect of furniture, uh, you know, and, and transplant it into the digital rather than it being like in the physical world. Mm -hmm. um, and just for listeners who, sorry, just for listeners who might not understand like what you're describing, chroma blue is this, it's often used in television and especially in weather forecasting, which I guess isn't really a thing anymore, but yeah. <laughs> it's effectively a kind of blue screen um, where any kind of graphic can be digitally projected onto a surface. Yeah, you key out, you key out the blue color and then you replace it by any kind of surface input or any image input that you want to kind of put in, mm -hmm. which in our case was surface. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, like Nick said, it kind of played with this idea as well of just kind of this digital digital capacity being kind of in, infinity, you know, when in real life you don't, you have to settle for, for, a, for a thing, for a material. Yeah, I think it like in a way the idea is a bit sort of... <laughs> It was like a kind of combination between being like an ironic idea, like a, a sort of a, a speculative project, but also being having something that's like f also kind of physical. Like we, the chairs themselves are like quite referential to like Enzo Mari kind of ad hoc kind of furniture or, or like Riedfeld, Planky, Distill furniture. So there was this sort of like a DIY kind of kind of almost crafty idea um but it had it was like interlaced with a digital um component so i think that's like really what what we like think about is the fact that we like i personally have quite a desire to like make things and, and explore processes and craft and like whatever that means you know it's obviously like a super broad topic but and then i think like also just both of us sort of just coming to terms with the fact that like you know we live in an extremely online and digital world and even if you try to avoid it it's like almost you know insidious in the way that it kind of influences you and it gets into every sort of pore of your being um and so we just wanted to kind of deal with that or just like play with it or reference it or without I guess, throwing away the fact that, you know, we like to make things in 3D and we like to manifest things in reality and we like furniture as a, as a medium for that. Um, and I also remember like the time when we were, sorry, when we were like uh, kind of talking about that project and figuring it out, we, a lot of our conversations were around the, the value and the, the sim like the symbol of a value of materials. Um, where it's, I guess, no longer kind of, we don't see it in traditional way that just marble has a certain value because, it, because of its natural kind of heritage, but it's kind of shifted elsewhere. 
it's almost like representations of those materials have similar value. Like it kind of followed through some of the later, same thought, thoughts followed through later projects as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it seems like there's always this weird subversion of expectations around value. I'm thinking yeah. of your corporate marble umbrella stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you were inspired by corporate foyers, or foyers, taking the cracked and folded marble slabs. And so, so instead of having this pristine, luxurious and decadent surface, you kind of almost destroyed it in a way and destroyed the expectations around its value. Similarly, there's this project, the pearl screw shelf bookcase, which mm. is this like, uh, all these images will be um, on the podcast Instagram and in the show notes as well. But it's this almost cartoonish bookshelf. And instead of capping the screws with plastic or leaving them exposed, you've taken these freshwater pearls and uh, adorned each screw with these incredibly refined and um, valuable objects. And so, yeah, there, I, I understand what you mean when you talk about these subverted expectations around value. And I mean, I guess to that point, the practice that you have together at Soft Baroque is a highly conceptual one. Every, every project seems driven by a specific set of ideas or concepts you want to explore through the objects you're designing. Um, and I think a lot of the, the concepts at play in your work uh, could be summarized by the name of the practice itself. And that might be a helpful way of kind of situating this broader umbrella you're working under as designers. Soft Baroque, what does that actually mean? <laughs> well, it's, it, it's become many things. At the beginning, it was almost just a joke between ourselves. It was almost a title for our collaboration that was in some ways a contradiction of terms, you know, like the idea of Baroque or, you know, is a sort of a, it's like a, un, it's almost unforgiving in its, in its sort of like total, total like vision and uh, commitment to, you know, in, in historical terms like Catholicism or in uh, the sort of, the power structure that was in Italy or where or around Europe at the time. And, and so it's like a, a completely uh, fully committed, you know, like term. But then the idea of making that soft or making that a like a version of like soft power or software or something that's not, not real or, or intangible or, or a, a kind of a insidious or like, kind of underground um, sort of like uh, indirect version of that is a contradiction in terms. And so like for us, I think a lot of our works had these sort of subtle contradictions in them, like using materials that don't really necessarily go together or speak to each other or, um, you know, in that pearl screw series, you know, we use carbon fiber and bamboo and pearls and these are like kind of cliches of masculine and feminine and Ikea kind of, mixed all together and we like the idea of that being um uh like the modern day baroque you know when you look at a church in in milan or in, in venice or whatever it's like thousands of different stones and materials and you know it's completely like showing off how much variation they can achieve in a way and how much complexity there is and we're doing that on like a, you know in like 
a shoestring kind of way in a way like we're just sort of trying to make our way in this in this environment um we've also thought about dropping the name for quite some time because it's almost like a a bit of a not a joke but it's it's um you know if we you know if people if we want to get like more serious about being like a kind of more of a i guess like a job shop type design practice where we're like doing interiors and things like that for clients it becomes a little bit like maybe unprofessional but then we just kind of kept it because we like it and, and you know there's been no real no, no real desire for us to keep you know to do those sort of projects really um, I, guess, I guess it's like we when we started to use the name we never intended to kind of become a serious practice and we still like today even like now we feel a bit like oh so wait we are a serious practice because like we just I feel like we have quite a lot of fun when we do work together we're also obviously in a private relationship so there's really no kind of <laughs> boundaries between what's our work what's our life mm-hmm. so I guess sometimes we just feel a bit guilty that all of it just is so easy and fun and you know <laughs> so we're like oh should we become more serious do we need a serious name do we need you know, stuff that other people have. But in another way, we still really, at least me, I really like the fact that it is this kind of name that very expressively, just like you said, tells, kind of describes what we do and is kind of like describing this little universe rather than our names or it's kind of we like to see it as a as a kind of everyone's friend, you know. I'm I'm interested in in understanding more what you mean when you say serious like what if if what you're doing now isn't quite serious because it's it can't be because it's so enjoyable for you what would a more serious practice mean and i suspect it has something to do with the way you engage with the market or the way yeah the goods you produce uh, would be manufactured or distributed well yeah i guess a lot of different things i mean we do we are serious about what we do um, and we think about it and we talk about it a lot, but I guess in terms of, you know, we don't have a, we don't know, like we know what we're going to do in the next few months because we have to have like a, some sort of vague plan, but we like to keep our kind of options open as well. And we don't want to commit to things that we don't feel are hundred percent us. I mean, yeah, even when it comes to to production, we always have kind of, back and forth conversation between us and potential clients where we feel like that's something we should be doing, but we sometimes feel like it's not for us. So um, I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Well, I think just from a a cultural, like movies and films and and (laughs) books and things that I like are kind of, yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but like they often have an absurdity to them, but then also a truth and, I mean, maybe it's also connected with the uh, kind of more postmodern, what what's called like postmodern movement of furniture in the sort of like sort of 60s, 70s, 80s that always has some humour to it, some self-references, some references that are completely absurd and some kind of actual sincerity about, well, it's all sincere, but like some some beauty without you know without all that and so like i don't really see why we need to kind of make these lines about like oh this one's a serious uh project and this one's a 
very restrained, kind of beautiful one. It's all kind of part of the same world. And it, and it um, yeah, it's not, not a very eloquent way of describing it. But um, I think that, yeah. Uh, I, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the seriousness that I was kind of um, deriving from Sasha's statement to me had to do with to what extent you as designers want to participate in consumer culture. Yeah. And I think one way of understanding what, what serious design is, is um, like, uh, what is your catalog? <laughs> yeah. Who manufactures your objects? How are they distributed? Yeah. There's a, a seriousness taken to um, the way the objects are made, at what scale they're made and how they're consumed. I think it, soft Baroque to me are an intensely serious practice, but on the other end of that spectrum, on the conceptual and cultural end, I guess, I think to me it feels like a really reflexive practice where you're doing a lot of thinking as you make. Thinking about our desires as consumers <laughs> and thinking about how you can reflect and comment on those desires as designers yourselves. And so... I mean, this brings me to an essay that you wrote and published recently. I think it was back in May of 2022 through Zurich University of the Arts. It's called Natural Order and Violent Hobbies. And you draw this distinction between thinking and making versus wanting and owning. And I wondered if we could try and unpack that distinction and where you stand, you know, in what you call the spectrum between those two poles. Um, well, I, yeah, from, from my perspective, I, I think that, that when, when we wrote that, I was like, I, I, I was, I liked, I liked the idea of it in a utopian sense, but it's obviously not practical, you know, for everybody to make everything that they need, but it was sort of reflective of the immense satisfaction I put, we, we personally get, or I personally get for like kind of fixing stuff and making things and and kind of um and making do with like kind of um with what you have or and i think that that sort of like desire is is is, is it's kind of like it's a bit of a dialectic between that and the idea of like earning money and buying stuff and like and the reason you earn the money is to buy the things and i think that there is that those two are a little bit of a dialectic in a way, but I don't really know how to um, untangle them. And there's probably mm. some Venn diagram where there's, or there's some fade between them. But I think that just in, in mm. general, like the kind of, for me, the satisfaction of buying something pales in comparison to the, the satisfaction of like making, even if it's just pushing a button and hitting print or on a 3d printer or, or hitting like play on a, you know, um, on a CNC machine. I think it's, there is this like, um, kind of a fascination that I, that I have from making things work and, 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 uh, making something in 3d that reflects your, or even in 2d that reflects your, you know, that's, that's essentially come from your, your brain. And I, 
I think that if somehow that was harnessed, that could be a, a force against consumerism in, in, in the kind of the weird, perverse way that it's developed in, in the West or in the world. And I think that it feels like the type of urge that could capture the same feelings as we as our desire as our consumer desires have. off we were talking about this distinction between thinking and making versus wanting and owning and how in a way soft baroque is quite a reflexive or critical and conceptual practice versus one that's directly engaged with um, kind of market dynamics and mass production you're not your standard industrial designers um, and I think for me, what's really exciting about that is it opens up all kinds of possibilities for you to do this interpretive work for us as consumers and tell us more about the environments we're moving through, both digitally and physically, and how those environments are shaping our desires as consumers. And so I feel like at the base of all of this is this topic of desire. <laughs> And I have to say, like, when I look at a lot of your work, uh, I often feel, in addition to this uncanny feeling I was talking about before and how, how, how reminiscent they are, are of virtual or digital artifacts, mm. I feel this sense of confusion or perplexity at how they work. I mean, physically, they, they seem almost impossible, especially the dancing furniture series. Um, but even this kind of pillow brick um, mm. construction as well, these kind of blobby brick constructions you've made and many others as well. And then I feel in a way a kind of revulsion <laughs> at what you've done, what you've done to the material you've worked with. There's a series that involve cutting into or slicing away at uh, quite recognizable materials, whether it's IKEA particle board or hollow aluminum square section material. Mm. You're kind of cutting into these things and revealing their hollowness in a way that feels quite sadistic. Mm. And so in that sense, there's something kind of um, weirdly erotic about it as well. There's this kind of attraction, repulsion yeah. sensation I get when I see a lot of the work. Yeah, I think... I think that that for us is is important. It is is a kind of a this is going to sound weird, but like a mindfulness of our desires. You know how you talk about like you know so like in a way like why why we find things attractive and why we find things sort of appealing. Like what do they mean and and why? Like what sort of sort of context has it has um, has what sort of environment has cultivated that feeling? And what we do a little bit is we take one of those desires. So, for example, like a, a kind of beautiful wood or like a, a sort of a, a traditional kind of topology that we, you know, we might be fascinated with. 
and then we we essentially like transmute one of those materials or one of those elements into something a little bit more disturbing or take it to an extreme that's like a little bit beyond and a continue almost like a continuation of that lineage into a place that's like over the top like we all have like we all see things on the side of the road or like on uh, in 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 our life that's almost just like an extreme object like it's a sort of like uh, something to do with material for example where uh, you know someone's taken an idea an aesthetic and just like you know kind of made it extreme so like um trying to think of something but like a you know a handbag that's been sort of jeweled but then those jewels are sort of you know being turned into like something else or in the shape of a minion like cartoon or something so it's like had this like little evolutionary life on of its own into making like a very unusual extreme object and we are sort of like almost like replicating that like mini little microcosm that's uh, done that but in a way that we feel like sort of like is a bit more tailored towards what sort of things are going through the more design or the art scene or or, or like in, in kind of like more like taste culture in general rather than popular culture um, well I'll just give you a couple of examples might be helpful like some of the wood things like that hard round um, pieces like they reference as well as referencing that tool they also reference like this mid-20th century um, like uh, kind of hippie modernist movement of creating these like big membered wood um, using the sort of the so-called beauty of the wood like live edge like Nakashima style uh, Californian kind of west coast um, and even Australia, a lot of in Australia as well um, where I'm from and it's it's almost like we're doing that topology but also making it in a completely using completely digital tools or like mm. we just made this chair called the we call it the toothpick chair but it's essentially um like very traditional like tapered mortise and tenon joints um but rather than them sort of like and, and that would be how windsor chair some windsor chairs are made and some traditional like english um, chairs would be made or scandinavian but we essentially, rather than it just stops, it kind of continues to a point, like almost like a sharp toothpick, uh, essentially. So it's like this, it's, it's a literal continuation of the joint into a point. But then when you join it all together and you create the kind of structure, it makes a very sort of spiky and um, sort of uh, hostile, like a hostile object. So it's, it's mm. yeah, like a tasteful um, craft a very tasteful uh, topology of chair, but just the continuation of this joint kind of into it's like ever you know it's evolved further than it than it than than um than it has in 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 its life and it's become this like kind of a, a, a visually but also like a tactilely strange and and a little bit like vicious object. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm just looking at this, your statement from your student days at the RCA <laughs> and how you describe your work as existing in this forceful intersection between cheaply produced ready-mades and components with a polished design sensibility. And I feel like that also gets at what you're describing, that there's this kind of unexpected um, elevation of um, some bizarre found 
material or object into something that is um, somehow luxurious or refined. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, just beyond that kind of dichotomy of what is base and what is uh, rare or luxurious, it's it it also feels like it, always with the work there is a dichotomy of what is what is craft, what is physical or analog, and what is virtual or digital or digitally derived. And I feel like that's why there's such this attraction to your work. I feel like internationally, I read somewhere that in the first three years after establishing Soft Baroque in 2013, you've been invited to something like 50 exhibitions and design shows and galleries. And it's a boggling number, um, but also in a way not surprising because I feel like the work itself is getting at this tension and concern around what to do with our increasingly digital lives, what to make of it and how to respond to it. And the work itself is its own language in a way, which I feel like is why it's so difficult for me to talk about because it is its own explanation. I think there's a kind of clairvoyance in the objects. There's this kind of truth-telling or soothsaying or interpretation that's going on, that's telling me or telling us about how we live today. And I feel like people must be coming to you to articulate that the way I'm doing right now. But of course, we're using words, we're not speaking in objects. And do you ever feel that kind of tension or pressure to speak on behalf of the work in a way that doesn't quite land on the explanation the way the work itself does? Or like, what do you do about that conundrum? Uh, yeah, I mean, I especially remember from kind of uh, from early on when, like, first couple of years when we worked together, there was especially kind of industrial, uh, not industrial, interior designers coming to us and wanting to work with us, but we're, they were a bit kind of concerned um, about our unpredictability, you know. They they liked what they see, but they were they wanted us to reassure them with our words that our model is this and that. And it's really hard for us to do that because even for us, there's like a certain kind of genesis about our work in the future because it is so much about kind of also just reflecting to what we see around. Um, so, yeah. Mm, I love how you've referred to the objects you design as poems. Yeah. In a way. In the past, in other interviews, I've, I've heard that term kind of come up before. And I think that brings me to this other part of your practice, which is how you research and how you yourselves immerse yourselves in the kind of cultures and traditions that you're responding to in your work. Um, And specifically what I'm thinking of is what amounted to a kind of performance piece, Nicholas, that you did online. Um, I think it was, what, two years ago now. Um, called a folder or unfolder, and can you just remind me who this was for again? It was some institution or museum. Oh uh, yeah, it was for a museum in Rome uh, called Macro. Yeah, it, and it was basically a kind of screen share where Nicholas opened up a folder, which to me, I could imagine being your kind of image dump folder, and then you'd put some words to the images, and what it, what it 
what it became was a kind of long free association poem. And I wondered, Nicholas or Sasha, if either of you could could actually read it out, read part of it out or all of it out, um, because I feel like this this poem or this list of words, essentially, these descriptions you have for materials you've been collecting, it goes a long way to describing the sensibility you're after, the phenomena you're describing, and the attitude you have as designers in a way that I think transcends any conversation we could have. Um, it's called tag, we call it tag poems. Yeah, and I think, I think what they ask, I think what they ask for is just like, oh, share your kind of inspiration folder or something, your like mood folder, but we don't really have that because we don't operate on mood boards. Okay. Um, so we often just kind of, well, Nick, Nick kind of watches heaps of like YouTube videos about people making things. Mm. And we often just kind of share with each other, like weird little objects that are kind of like, yeah, little poems on their own, you mm. know? So we thought like, oh, why not kind of putting together a folder like that and, and sharing that instead of kind of a classic inspiration folder that we don't have so you don't have mood boards but do you collect digital yeah images, i mean I, I, or is it mainly youtube or? you know i collect them i i think maybe maybe just the the term mood board isn't the correct one but like yeah it's pretty we just, cr- it can be a cringe word yeah mood. exactly yeah. yeah yeah i just have like a, a, a just called like internet folder and essentially just everything uh-huh. that i see on like alibaba or like on youtube screenshots or like just products or just things that kind of come across they're a bit more like my a bit more my flavor rather than Sasha's these ones but um uh, can you tell me more actually just before you read it Alibaba (laughs) I've heard home hardware come up a lot in previous conversations of yours Mm. but I mean where else online are you looking what kind of currents are you moving through uh well yeah just I mean I guess like um, yeah, just the the kind of deluge of products that come from you know India or China or 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 even you know the US, where it's just these sort of strange, ultra specific, uh, either um, mm. sort of aesthetic things, you know, like or or just like functional oddities um, that mm. that are both representative of the fact that like we're desperate to make as many new products as possible, uh, you know, as many new ways of selling things and as many, like, as most precise, more precise we can nicheify and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, get, get more and more specific into, like, these extreme niches of, like, you know, massage tools for dogs and, like, you know, just ex- sort of, like, the more products you can sell because you're going to sort of, like... And I think that that's just like an example of like extreme consumerist sort of or capital, like where capitalism has, actually has to go in terms of innovation is not really innovation anymore. It's like essentially this, um, you know, like, you know, as many like opportunities for selling things rather than it actually being a need that we need to fulfill. Mm. And so I think that's a very sort of like general critique of, capitalism or whatever or or our culture but like i think in a way these the internet is just like 
the product world or the industry industrial world on the internet is just kind of fascinating in terms of like what goes into you know what goes into like making humans live you know which is ridiculous because we you know we don't really need that much but apparently we do okay let's read let's read the poem now and then i just have a few more questions to follow damascus steel anodized titanium carbon fiber abalone fossil mastodon ivory timascus superconductor 24 karat gold semi-transparent shell gemstones, meteorites, and fossilized coral, a complete circle of masculine decorative expression, violent hobbies. 60 minutes, minimum resistance, passive-aggressive wood, solid core, wide range of styles, elemental displacement, cultural backdraft. Terminator shits carpaccio, silicon crystal is grown, Ingot is sliced thinly, highly polished, etched, served with a deposition of heavy metals, silicon-based life forms. Slow focus of a tree in a swamp, adventurous aerial roots with unknown purpose, growing against the grain, kneecapped for vintage coastal beach house mid-century modern decor lamp, Wood pulp to rosewood, culturally false but ecologically necessary, thin skins the thickness of a layer of UV activated ink are essential to value. Direct to media digital veneers, technical improvements are often turned in efficiency of productivity and cost cutting. There is a transmission of the value through digital and simulated services. Now, the value of a cultural reference can exist without the ecological damage caused by the real thing. World puzzle piece. Furniture to shoot from, furniture to shoot at. Geopolitical stone finish. The stone of scone, aka the coronation stone, aka the stone of destiny, aka Jacob's pillow a.k.a. Tannis Stone, a.k.a. the Klaknon Sinneheim. Garden Variety Stone Fetish The satisfaction of fitting a natural substance with a frame. Formal decorative timber profiles sweep the rail contours on a single plane. Softness is a state of mind. Inflated sense of worth. Orthopedic chic. Patterns in patterns. What we discover when we flatten ourselves for digital presentation under the skin a human hides. The internal light in a laminar flow is only appreciated fully when disturbed. Relaxed hand on relaxed hand. Jellyfish yoga shiny look ADHD Superior focused military, effortlessly active sitting. Invention, noun, an invention by a man for a woman that they don't need or want. Expression comes out when we cut away the normal bits. Four axis of laser focused style, high tolerance decoration.
What should be the resolution of nostalgia? Image capture, stabilization, prosthetics, cyborg attachments for lens flare and tilt shift in the aesthetics. Optically, the swaying of the human body is uncomfortable when not viewed firsthand. Wood turned inside out. The abstract real estateism movement. The flattened skin of a room. Hot seat office genie. E-commerce ready to wear, out of focus, censored personal happiness. Painting the conditions of being anonymous. The fine art of not existing. Machine washable parametricism. 60 degrees, do not iron. Moisture barrier, anti-static vacuum fetish. Found object homogenization. Packaging is product. The ancient confidence of utilitarian objects. A boat to sail into a digital ocean, the throne of future kings. Enhanced sense of psychological security. Personal satisfaction of fulfillment. Overclocking capitalism. Release ourselves from the weight of the human body. Alfresco worldview. Washing away the addictive trauma of the news cycle. Full spectrum high definition water damage. The more we rise, the more we sink. Minimal neutral tones are an elaborate story we tell ourselves to feel connected to a modernist faith healing. Modern buildings are the art of composites. We are in the adhesive age. A matching dining set is an easy way to achieve a coordinated look for every size and space. By choosing a matching table and chairs, you also save time searching for the perfect fit, giving you more time to focus on spending precious time with your family and friends. IKEA.com Rendered space, a placeholder for objects, from the furnaces of simulated decor, what are the algorithms that generate future kitsch? Rustic executive energies, corporate savages, weathered by revenue, natural selection, hostile takeover, bucolic surplus, his and hers acid baths, the gourmet gamer lifestyle. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> I remember so when these I first... All, yeah, you go. Sorry. No, I just remember when I first saw that, I felt like um, I could finally understand what was going on with the, with the work. I think beyond the kind of um, entry points that other people have established into thinking about how soft Baroque work in terms of these, this hybrid digital physical practice or um, the kind of reconciling of um, traditional craft with the modern means of manufacturing. I feel like it's really in this kind of work that I can start to more fully interpret what it is you're doing. And um, in the show notes, I'll, I'll include a link to the video itself of Nicholas reading it, because what complements each statement is an image from your internet folder. And I feel like that's when we really, 
um, have this more complete sense of, um, in a way, the kind of um, cultural ambience that's informing um, the work of soft Baroque? Yeah. Um, I think, like, well, just in regards to that poem, I think, like, a lot of, you know, what what we're kind of, we're doing as well is not necessarily, like, too removed from what's out there in the world. We're just sort of framing it in a certain way. Like, you know, the, this piece is called, like, Tag Poems, or um, and it's, like, the tags that are sort of apparently on, you know, that are now used for sort of search optimization. And occasionally you get these anomalies on the internet that are a product page or an eBay um, listing that's just so bizarre you know it's it's almost like a free association or like a a beat poet mm. would would mm. would um a friend sent me one the other day that was just insane um oh, i know <laughs> what you mean these like amazon product descriptions yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it was almost like our own kind of way of almost like without the sort of like the the lens of being like doing arts, like proper art speak, where you're sort of speaking about something in this super coherent like way. It's almost just like, oh, just pick the words that we want to use that somehow kind of capture it and just like throw them all together in a bit of a soup. And it's fine because it's just like tags or whatever, you know what I mean? Or like a, a nonsensical description. And so I think that's what, in a way that we're trying to do, but it just, yeah, I guess like, with these tag, these strange listings and things like that, it's just like these, these glitches in in the system in a way. Like in the in the online retail system, there's just this is the way that people have discovered to sell things, which is just completely <laughs> abstract and nonsensical and and strange. And I I think that's what we're trying to explore in a way where things evolve into the or devolve into this this um almost like artworks you know <laughs> mm. yeah yeah um, i think what i enjoy most about that is this openness to these new forms of expression which could be written off as merely glitches or somehow unsavory even or reprehensible means of just merely driving internet traffic <laughs> um but mm. in your hands they become material for a poem they become a kind of poetic artifact that you can then continue to manipulate, polish and exhibit or display as something of um, considerable value. Mm. And I think it's that openness and curiosity around this ever shifting idea of what is contemporary culture, both digital and material, that I find most inspiring as an architect, as someone who comes from the world of architectural practice, I feel like oftentimes designers of all stripes would benefit more from that kind of sense of exploration. There's a real conservatism, I think, materially and formally, especially in architecture in London and the UK, where Mm -hmm. we're often looking backwards more than we are um, at the direct present. And so I think it's that focused and intense observation of the present that um that i really value in the work of soft baroque so i just want to say thank you again nicholas and sasha for your time today i really appreciate it you're welcome thank you very much it was great yeah thank you
Scaffold is a project from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Bunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Sasha and Nicholas. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.